My name is Dean Annan, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Village Church, and I'm going to be out those doors after service. I would love for you to just come up and say hi if I haven't met you yet. But if you haven't heard this yet today, you mothers, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Can we do that again? I don't know if we uh, clapped earlier, but uh, it's just such a great thing. Thank you, moms. Thank you, grandmothers. Thank you to those who sometimes step in and, and provide the role of mother to us. And, and I went online, uh-oh, <laughs> I went online, and I found a partial job description. I, I emphasize partial for mothers. You ready for this? We'll see if it's any good. We can evaluate later. How about this? How about chef? How about conflict resolution manager? Uh, event planner? Teacher? Any of these ringing true yet? Uh, chauffeur? <laughs> counselor? Uh, finance manager? Healthcare provider, activities director, there's, there's, so, there's so many more. How about this, discipleship maker? I love that. And this is my favorite, world changer. Because it is mothers who are the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, and the arms of Jesus. And that's a mom. So thank you, mothers. We love you. I also know that today... And just want to recognize this truth that some of us come here today and, and Mother's Day is a little difficult because some of us I know in this congregation have just lost mothers. Some of you have lost children. And also some of us, some here want to be mothers but aren't able to. And so I want to let you know God sees you, we see you, and there's no better place to be than here in the family of God. Amen? <clears throat> you don't have to pretend here. So as I pray for you mothers and then for this uh, lesson that we're about to have, let's bow our heads, let's open our hearts and see what God has for us. Let's pray. God, first I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the mothers in our lives who love us so much, who sacrifice in the name of Jesus for us, love us, and teach us even more about what it means to be like you, to follow you, Jesus, and to receive your love. And so today, God, as we go into this lesson in your holy word, I pray you would open up our hearts and minds and that we would be different leaving here today than when we came, knowing more of you, Jesus, and your love, and that that would change us today. Amen. And so in baking, yes, I said baking, one thing I know about baking is this, that ingredients matter. I know you can't just wing it. I mean, that I know. I mean, some, I think that, uh, well, let's say you're baking something. Notice I said you're baking something, not me. I like to think I can cook, but I leave baking to the pros. So you're never going to find me on Cake Boss or, or Cupcake Wars. I don't know the rest of them, but I know those exist. I don't know if I've ever seen them. And I'll never be on those unless, of course, it's to eat. Um, what I do know is that in baking, you can't just randomly swap out ingredients. That I know also. I know a big mistake would be is if you're reading the recipe and you mistake one ingredient for another and then you search for the wrong ingredient and expect something to come out in a good way. It's not going to happen. And so here's what I like to say. If you're seeking the wrong thing, you're never going to get what you need. If you're seeking the wrong thing, you're never going to get what you need. I mean, that's so true. You might get what you want, but it's not what you need. That can be true in relationships. It can be true in anything. If you're find, trying to find peace, contentment, whatever it is, if you're seeking the wrong thing, you'll never get what you need. 
So be careful what you seek after. Uh, last week, in last week's lesson, we had this miracle feeding of the 5,000, and the people were, were really, they were seeking a king, which was the wrong time, the wrong thing to do, trying to get Jesus to be their king. And today in our passage, what we're going to see is that the people are still seeking after Jesus, but they're really looking for a meal ticket. In their misguided and, and selfish pursuits, they continue to be far from Jesus. And that can be true of anybody, even today. If we're seeking the wrong things, those things can keep us far from Jesus. So we're in the third week of a five-part series entitled, Jesus Is. And today, it's Jesus Is, the Son of Man. And hang on to that, because that's going to be our point today. Jesus is the Son of Man. In verse 27, we'll get there eventually, but we're in John chapter 6, and you can turn there or turn on your device to John chapter 6, we're starting in verse 16, and we're going to go all the way to verse 29. So Jesus is the Son of Man. Are you seeking him is a question for today. And right after the miracle feeding, the Apostle John, in this week's uh, miracle, what he, he takes us right from one miracle to another. This is Jesus walking on the water, and we're about to go there. And after that, you'll see in our passage, there's a brief discussion then between the crowd and between Jesus. So our big idea is this. Believe in the Son of Man. This is the work of God. So we'll handle it in three parts. The first six verses, storm on the sea. And then the next five verses, seeking for self. And that's not a good thing. And the third part, the last three verses, salvation through the Son of Man. I'm going to break each of these up and then handle each of these three sections and dive into each of them. So the first part, storm on the sea, the first six verses. Here's what we should know. Before we go there, Matthew and Mark wrote about this too, and it's, it's immediately after the feeding miracle this happens. And Jesus had his disciples get into a boat and row to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus didn't join them. He didn't join them and stayed behind. And the crowd knew that. What we also learn from the other Gospels is that Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and it had become evening and from a distance, Jesus is looking out over the Sea of Galilee and he's seeing the disciples out there on a boat and they're struggling far from land against the wind and the waves. So John 6 verse 16 says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Last week, I talked a little bit about symbolism with John, and he loves symbolism. It's so important. He always wants to paint a, paint a picture to capture us, to pull us in, but to speak of spiritual truths. And now we see at the very beginning, we see words like evening, we see words like dark, and then right after that, we see, and Jesus had not yet come to them. John's linking these ideas together. Why? He wants to paint a picture. What's the picture? A cloud of darkness in this bad situation. That's what we're getting into. And Matthew tells us this, that physically the disciples were being, and I quote, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The Sea of Galilee was known for sudden storms. You had the cool Mediterranean air would filter down through the valley, get down to where the Sea of Galilee was, and meet the warmer air, and then sudden storms. That was a normal thing of the day. 
But also, in the Old Testament, when we think of the sea, the Old Testament in the sea was a symbol for things like danger or chaos or even anarchy, disorder. And you see the, the danger and the chaos of the sea in the book of Jonah. And I'll just read a piece of the book of Jonah in chapter 1. It says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, who were afraid, each cried out to his own God. Danger, chaos on the sea. And in the Old Testament, Psalm 65, David writes, writes of a universal rule, God's universal rule over everything, control over everything, nature and the sea. However, what you also see in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament is God has power over nature. God has power over the sea. God has power to soothe the sea. And he brings awe and wonder and comfort to his people. We have Psalm 65 for you. I'm just going to read about four verses. Verse 5 says, this is David writing, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth, of all the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Verse 7 says this, Who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out and the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So after the feeding of the 5,000, that was last week, we saw Jesus is certainly the provider. But in the psalm we just read, and in the passage today, what we're going to see is God is the protector, the protector of all who follow him. Verse 19. When they had rowed, who this is the disciples, remember, minus Jesus, when they had rowed about three or four miles out into the sea, so they're out quite a ways, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. I want to stop there for a minute. So did some of you people grow up in, in Sunday school? I mean, a lot of people here probably did in the congregation. I don't know if you had flannel grass back in the day, or maybe you used modern digital technology. There is that, I know. But whatever it is, if you grew up in the church or you've been in the Bible a while, you, you've seen this before. You've seen that Jesus walked on the sea. That's crazy. Think about that. If you're new here today or new to Scripture, think about that. He's out way over his head, and yet he's walking on water. Let's not go by that. Just think about that for a minute. We'll imagine that more in a minute. But then he comes near the boat. And what boat? This is the boat where the disciples are. They're talking about the boat where the disciples are. And of course, they're frightened. Who wouldn't be? They don't know who he is yet or what this is until he says this. He says, it is I. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at land to which they were going. Even a, another miracle, it seems. So Jesus walked right over it walked right over the water. And the Gospels tell us that it was very, very windy, the other Gospel writers. And so I kind of imagine that, that uh, Jesus, uh, his hair is blowing, his, 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 his clothes are probably waving around, and, and maybe he's walking and saying, oh, there's a three-foot wave, there's a five-foot wave, I made those. I, I, just whatever he's thinking. But, but what I do know is that he's not struggling. Okay? The, the disciples are struggling. He's not struggling. He's calm. And we know from the Gospel of Mark we know that Jesus calmed the wind and the sea. I quote, Jesus got in the boat and the wind ceased. So what do we learn? 
we can learn just from this. We can learn the truth, and we can learn to live out the truth. And what we know right away is when Jesus walked on water is that Jesus has authority over nature. And I want you to hang on to that word authority. I'm going to come back to that a lot. Authority. Remember that. But as we live out this truth, if we think about this truth, we can see Jesus' confidence here, his power and his protection. We see that the disciples were frightened, of course, and they invited Jesus into the boat. He calmed the wind. He calmed the disciples. But remember, church, something that's true today. We serve the same God, the same Jesus. He has complete authority over your days, over your nights, over your struggles, over your storms, whatever they are, he has complete authority. Now, you, you may not believe that right now, but as we invite Jesus in to reign in all our areas of life, which is important, it becomes more impactful and more functional in your life. So you may not believe it's true right now, but it is, but to Make that functional in your life. What do we do? Well, I'm not going to give you a magic button to push. I'm not going to give you a lever to pull, but I am going to say this. It's a spiritual act of inviting Jesus into all areas of our lives. Emotions, struggles, storms. It doesn't matter what they are. Everything. And then you can functionally, every day, living under that impact that God is the God who gives you confidence because he is confidence. He gives you power and he gives you protection through everything. And you can do it. I'm not talking about a super Christian. There is no such thing as a super Christian. I'm sorry to disappoint anybody here if you're thinking that. There are no super Christians. But here's what there are. There are those who submit to God's authority and do what he says. Just those who submit to God's authority and, and do what he says. And the secret sauce in that is to do it together. How can we do that? Uh, prayer partners, sharing your concerns, bringing others into your life. Together, we can submit to God's authority and do what it says. We're not pretending to be super Christians here, but God is a God of authority. And we can make that functional in our lives by coming to him. It's a spiritual act. So John doesn't spend much time on this uh, walking on the water miracle. Maybe it's because Mark and Matthew have already wrote about it before John did. Uh, certainly John wanted us to know Jesus did this miracle and walked on water. But another thing's happening here is I think that he wanted us to know that, John, that Jesus really did cross the sea by walking and ended back then on the northwestern side at Capernaum. And that's where we're going next. We're going next in our passage because that's where it heads. It heads to Capernaum. The second part, seeking for self with the crowd seeking Jesus. So that's where we are, the second part, verses 22 through 26. Now, in verse 22, the crowd uh, that's left over, this isn't the huge crowd of about 20,000 from last week. Some of the people were dismissed. Some of the people left. Some people were left. The crowd is a smaller crowd at this time after the feeding miracle. But... They're still looking for Jesus. And we have a map that shows um, where Capern Capernaum is, which is in the northwestern side. So they knew that Jesus didn't take off in the boat, and they didn't know that Jesus had walked on water. That was kind of a private miracle for now between the disciples and Jesus. And they were wondering, where could he have gone? Because they didn't know. So what did they do? They went to the most logical place 
to look for Jesus. And what was that? And that day, that was Capernaum. Why? Because that was his headquarters, if you will. That's where you could find Jesus. So that's where they went. Verse 22 says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias, which is down southwest, came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. And why were they going to Capernaum? They were going to seek Jesus. Before I move forward, I want to go back to a thought from earlier. And the thought is this. If you're seeking the wrong thing, you'll never get what you need. God knows our hearts. Jesus knows the hearts of the crowd. God knows what we're seeking. Jesus knew what they were seeking. So now let's read verse 25. Verse 25 starts the first of two questions between, and questions and answers between the crowd and Jesus. Verse 25 says this, when they found him on the other side, when they found who? When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So in verse 25, something unusual had just happened. The people knew something weird was going on. There wasn't a boat for Jesus, but somehow he got to Capernaum. Now, he didn't explain to them what he had just done. He didn't explain. It was kind of a private miracle for them between him and his disciples. Later on, people, of course, found out about it. But Jesus knew the reality of their hearts. He doesn't answer the question the way you'd think. He answers them in verse 26. And verse 25 seems like an innocent question, right? When did you come here? But it's not, because Jesus knows that they're using him. Jesus actually, in verse 26, rebukes them. Or maybe today's language would be, he blasted them. Why did he blast them? Because of their lack of spiritual understanding. Now, realize that they have seen this rabbi, a rabbi like any no other rabbi ever in the history ever of Rabinius, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, of being a rabbi. I'm making that up. Never has anybody ever taught like him or have done the miracles like him. No one ever. But it's not just their lack of spiritual understanding, it's what's underneath that and what is causing that. And that's their materialistic motivation. They are looking after Jesus because of their stomachs. And so I can't overstate this enough. If I were given a million years to talk about this idea of spiritual understanding, I couldn't overstate it, how important it is. Verse 26, when Jesus says this, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's saying to them that these signs, these miracles that he performed, they're intended to do one thing. They're intended to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ, not just to fill their stomachs. Anyone who really seeks spiritual understanding through Jesus without selfish motivations in tow will be led by the signs of um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There you go. All will be led to Jesus who are seeking him with true motivations can be led to faith in Jesus Christ. 
But we know the sinful heart, and we know that sometimes we choose other things, and the crowd did over faith. They let these, these signs lead them to just wanting more of Jesus, the meal ticket Jesus. And I think about our modern churches, and we're so blessed, aren't we? We are so blessed in our modern American churches. I mean, honestly, we, we don't really have any excuses, do we? To seek deeper spiritual understanding. And we are so blessed. We have so many Bibles. Sometimes some of you have multiple Bibles in your house. And you have Bible apps, right? We all do. There's, there's Bible apps. You can download some of them for free. And we have all our, I need all you need to go deeper into the word of God to seek spiritual understanding. We even have Village Church Digital. And if you haven't checked that out yet, you can go look there and you can see and more resources to go deeper into spiritual understanding and faith in Jesus Christ. So, a question this week that I wrote down on some note cards. Yes, I still use note cards. <laughs> wrote down on note cards for myself is, why do I go to church? So let me put this for you, up for you. Why do you go to church? And, and why or what are you here to meet? Are you here to meet Jesus? I hope so, because I know that sometimes we have other needs. Sometimes we have social needs. We have material needs, all those things. But are you here to meet Jesus? Because frankly, the only reason I'm standing here today and the only reason the worship team comes up here is to meet Jesus. We're here to make much of Jesus, frankly, and to introduce people and to reintroduce people over and over again to Jesus, to meet Jesus. So as we move out of our second part of seeking for self, We're heading into our third part, salvation through the Son of Man. This is verse 27 through 29, three verses, and it's actually what we've been driving at the whole time today. But before we go there to verse 27, I need to take a slight tangent. But don't think of it as a tangent because it's important. It helps us. Titles. I just want to talk about titles for a minute. Titles, they can be important because they can describe something for us, maybe roles or responsibilities. Sometimes they give authority to people. Sometimes they show of an office, whatever. Titles can be important. There's one company that um, has the title of cheese sprayer. That sounds great, doesn't it? It's the person who takes cheese and, and, and butter and sprays it on popcorn. Kind of self-explanatory. I love that one. That's a good one. How about this one? Maybe some of you want to be this. Space travel agent. That's a real thing. That's not a joke. It's a real thing. Have you heard of the company Virgin Galactic? Anybody heard of Virgin Galactic? Because it's a real company. Yeah, Virgin Galactic. And it's the world's first space uh, tourism business. They have. You could apply. I don't know if they're still accepting anymore. Last I looked, I'm not sure. But space travel agent. You could try that. Or another company calls their sales executives sales ninjas. (laughs) For a moment, I had a thought. Maybe I should look at my own title here at church, discipleship, I don't know, ninja. I, I, I thought about that for a minute and didn't work. We even have a slide for it and we deleted it. So, <laughs> so thank you, staff. But a little more serious, Jesus, for him, there's about 200 titles or 200 names in the Bible just for Jesus. You're familiar maybe with Isaiah chapter 9, the Prince of Peace, or in Ephesians chapter 2, the Chief Cornerstone, or the Holy One from the book of Psalms and also from Acts. I'll, just for a moment, and out loud is fine, I'd love to hear a few of your favorite titles of Jesus. Does anybody have one or two? Favorite titles of Jesus from Scripture? Emmanuel and... 
Lamb of God, another? King of Kings? Counselor? How about another one? Prince of Peace, and then? Say that again? Boni. Alpha and Omega. All right. Well, we could keep going forever, couldn't we? <laughs> we could go the rest of it. And because each of these titles, they really mean something. You dig in, you see the goodness, the beauty, the awesomeness of our Lord. We have a few up here we can put on the, the screen. The first one, King of Kings, I heard that, and Lord of Lords, Light of the World. And it goes on, Alpha and Omega from the book of Revelation. By the way, these I just selected from the Apostle John's writings only. I mean, there's all kinds of titles for Jesus. The second slide we have starts with, I am, when Jesus is declaring he is the God, the self-existent, reliant God that revealed himself to Moses in the desert. Jesus claimed that title, I am. A couple down after that is the bread of life. And we're going to get to that one next week. And that's where really this whole narrative, I think, is really driving towards, is the bread of life. And that's next week, Good Shepherd. And it goes on and on, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, all of those. But notice I didn't mention these two. I didn't mention the Son of God, and I didn't mention the Son of Man. And I didn't do that because I want, I want to talk about those in a little more detail. First, the Son of God. The Son of God, that title for Jesus is to point us, to teach us, and to remind us that Jesus is God. It's focusing on Jesus' deity. But the Son of Man is a little different. It implies deity but its focus is different. Its focus is Jesus' humanity. It implies his deity, but it focuses on his humanity. And Jesus takes this title, Son of Man, from the Old Testament. He takes it from the Old Testament, and he uses it because it is a messianic title, and it is the primary title that he uses over and over and over again for himself. And in the Gospel of John, even just 12 times alone, he uses this title. And the phrase son of, son of man means this. It's the phrase or title which emphasizes the humanity of Christ which exists alongside his divinity. It is a messianic title. Now sometimes in the church we say things like Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Why do we say that? Because it's the best understanding really I can think of of what it means Jesus all God and Jesus all man. It's what the scripture teaches. I can't explain that to you. If you find somebody that tries to explain it to you, maybe you should run the other way. <laughs> because frankly, it's a little too deep. It is mysterious, yet it's true. And so the joining of Christ's deity and humanity into one being at his virgin birth, which is essential for Christianity, is called this, the hypostatic union. It's a big word, right? It's a big word. And we could say hypostatic union, or we could say 100% God, 100% man, but Christ being fully God, Christ then being fully man at the incarnation, at the virgin birth, is amazing. It, it, it's unique. It's amazing. There's nothing like this ever, anywhere, any religion, at any time. This is different. This is shocking. And this is true. And it's changed the world and frankly, I wouldn't be up here if it weren't true. The hypostatic union. All God, all man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes this, this term, this title, Son of Man, from the Old Testament. Now back in the Old Testament, Son of Man was used 93 times for the prophet Ezekiel. But that focus was really just him being a human being. 
That's really all it was used for. But when you get to the book of Daniel, things change. There's a dramatic switch, a dramatic switch. It's used only two times in Daniel's writings. But it raises the stakes because the son of man in the book of Daniel is more than just a flesh and blood figure. It's a a human-looking figure, a king messiah figure who's in the very presence of God. And we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7 in just a minute, and we'll have something on the screen here. But this son of man is not just a man. Because the son of man in the book of Daniel in chapter 7 has all the privileges of God, all the authority, all the sovereign power. We talked about sovereignty. We, We read about God being sovereign a minute ago, right? And the Son of Man will be worshipped, it says in the book of Daniel, by people from everywhere, speaking all languages, giving him honor, glory, and praise. And this Son of Man in the book of Daniel will have an eternal kingdom. And this is a prophecy for the future. So chapter 7 of Daniel, Son of Man, the very centerpiece of the Old Testament Revelation concerning the Messiah was written about 500 years before Jesus' time. And so he uses this term for himself. And so as we put up Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 13, it's, it's important to know uh, the Ancient of Days here is God himself. Why is God sometimes called the Ancient of Days? Well, because uh, God existed, of course, before days were even created. So verse 13, Daniel 7 says this, and this is Daniel's vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Again, this is Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him, meaning the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Old Testament image that Jesus draws on. Now, in the New Testament, moving to the New Testament, Son of Man is used 88 times. What's interesting is the Son of Man is used about double the amount of times than the Son of God is used in the New Testament. And there's about four buckets that the Son of Man applies to Jesus. There's about four different buckets. It refers to himself, but also The Son of Man describes his authority. And like I said before, we're going to hang on to that word authority and take it through this whole lesson today. When you think about authority, think about Jesus and think about him casting out demons. Think about all of these miracles, healing people, the lepers. Think about his future glorification, which is to come. Think about the fact that he's the holder of eternal life. This is his authority. And the third one up there talks about anticipating the suffering and death of the Son of Man. So when Jesus uses the Son of Man, he's oftentimes talking about this anticipation, this moving forward towards the cross. You remember Nicodemus, the Pharisee? Back in chapter 3, there was a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus first talks about this snake being lifted up on a pole. Now that goes back, I won't go into that, but it's in the Old Testament, it's with Moses, there's a pole, there's an image of a snake lifted up. And so Jesus says this to Nicodemus about himself. As the snake was lifted up in the desert, he says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referring to himself going to the cross, who will suffer and who will die. The Son of Man is one who will come, who will suffer and will die. 
So we're still in the third part here, this third part of salvation through the Son of Man, verses 27 through 29. But now that we've talked about the title Son of Man, now I want to simply and plainly and carefully with spiritual eyes and spiritual understanding, now that we've spent time talking about the Son of Man, dig and go into verse 27. Remember back in verse 26, before we get there, Jesus rebuked the crowd. Why? Because they were more concerned about their stomach. Now when we get to verse 27, Jesus is speaking. And here's what Jesus says. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That's spiritual language. Jesus is using a metaphor. Actually, he's mixing a metaphor in here. And he's saying physical food is short-lived, but spiritual food endures forever. And it leads to eternal life. And then he says that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, himself, he says that the Son of Man will give you this. That's the key. The Son of Man and only the Son of Man can give this eternal life. It's only from me, he's saying. Remember the Son of Man, again, is the authority. He has authority to do anything. He has authority to give eternal life. He has authority over nature. We saw that before in our earlier miracle today, to walk on water. But also the Son of Man anticipates his death and his suffering. He and he alone can give eternal life. And then it says, for on him, meaning on the Son of Man, God the Father sent his seal, or set his seal. And the seal is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit which, was, uh, which Jesus was anointed with in John chapter 1. So, there's a question that comes next from the crowd. And there seems to be a change. When you get to verse 28, something's happening here. And I'm not sure how much they really cared at this point, but it seems that now in verse 28, they want to please God. They're asking a question. What's the question? They say, what must we do now that he's talking about eternal life and there's work to do? What is it? They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The crowd is thinking of, in that day, they're thinking of righteousness, good deeds, works, whatever it takes to be right with God. That's their mindset. That's what they're thinking. Imagine the scene. Jesus said what he said, and now you're asking, what are these works we need to do to please God, to have eternal life? They're in a a synagogue. We learned this a little later in the passage. We're in a synagogue. Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, and you could just hear a pin drop. Because here this, the most famous rabbi, the one who's done all these miracles, no one's ever taught like him, is now going to answer this question. What must they do to please God? What works must they do to have eternal life? And this time, Jesus directly answers their question. Verse 29, Jesus says this to them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So God has sent the Son of Man So believe in him in order to have eternal life. That's what he's saying. But something is happening here that's a little different. If you look back at verse 28, they're asking, what are the works? And now Jesus, the the righteous works they can do, but Jesus flips the narrative. He turns the situation upside down because he says one singular work. There's only one thing. He changes the words to work. There's only one thing you can do. And what is that one thing? Do you remember Curly? (laughs) <laughs> that one thing from City Slickers, the old cowboy? No? Okay, somebody, you need to ask somebody that. There, there was this one thing. He had an old arthritic finger who used to do What was that one thing, the one thing you needed? 
Curly said you needed to find that one thing. Well, that one thing here, that one thing that Jesus is talking about, that one work is believing. It's believing in the promised one from Daniel 7, the Messiah. Not like the kind of work we think of today. Certainly it's not works righteousness. It's believing in Jesus Christ, the one thing. Not a vast amount of whatever these righteous works are or good deeds, but the work is simply believing in Jesus. And so finally, when I conclude here, I just want to remind us of the big idea to start, and that is this. Believe in the Son of Man. This is the work of God. So for us to do that, it certainly takes spiritual understanding. Um, to put the self aside, right? To seek spiritual understanding, to seek after Jesus and to invite him in who has all authority in our lives. Then I have a couple so what's. And this one might sound a little odd, but I kind of want to read it and then explain it. Submit your opinions to the authority of the Son of Man. Remember, Jesus has all authority over truth, over your theology, my theology, believing, life, living, everything. He has the authority. Only Jesus has this authority. And so for some of us, our opinions, we kind of hold really dear, don't we? I mean, it's kind of like we almost want to die on the hill of opinions. They're very dear to us. And I believe me, I understand that. But for us to grow as Christians and not be stuck as immature Christians, giving up our opinions to the authority of the Holy Word of God, looking to the Holy Word of God in everything grows us. And it's so important. I think about the sermon I was writing for this week. I think about discussions I've had. I think about looking and reading the news, right? Some of you look and read the news. It's so important to submit our opinions to the authority of God's Word. What does that mean? Adjust, throw out sometimes, reevaluate our own opinions and give over to the truth of God's word. Second so what is simply just a call, the second so what, to respond to what we've seen in the last few weeks. Some challenges to live out the calling of what it means to follow and to submit to the Son of Man. A few weeks back, it was receiving eternal life. We saw that, and today it was also talking about eternal life. Last week, to listen to and obey the prophet, the actual voice of God, who is God, Jesus Christ himself, and this week, respond to his authority in your life, in every single situation, in all ways, even in the storms, respond to Jesus. So as we lead now into communion, I want to remind us of something that happened, and this was at Jesus' trial. Way back at his trial, this is before his crucifixion, he was being interrogated by the high priest. And while he was being interrogated by the high priest, Jesus said this. He said, remember, this is moments before the cross. He said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When Jesus said this, he was stating that he is the Son of Man, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, the one they were waiting for. And the Jewish leaders at that point declared, he must die. He must die. The Son of Man, who is authority and power over all, went to the cross, taking our sin penalty, taking your sin penalty. And so for all who believe in the Son of Man, in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, if you come to that place, if you have said yes to Jesus, 
realizing you are a sinner before a holy God, believing in his death and his resurrection, then whether you're from Village Church or not today, then take communion with us. We'd love that. We know you're in the family of God. We'd love you to take communion with us today. But if you're not sure what that means to be a follower of Jesus, just come. See me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about taking a next step in receiving Jesus as your Savior. But if you're also sitting here right now and and maybe you're watching online and something's happening in you and you're not sure what it is, but you're being convicted for the first time of your sin, I'm going to tell you what that is. That's the Holy Spirit of God calling on you today to come to him in faith. Jesus died, took all of your penalty that you deserve on the cross. He took that for you. Ask him to forgive your sins today. And if that's your step of faith today, to receive him as your savior, take communion with us. So in a little bit, we're going to take communion. And if you don't have a cup, we'll have a song here in a moment. The cups will be over there, my, the column to my left, column to my right, and back there. And so as we're singing, feel free to go get a cup if you still don't have it. So let's pray for a moment, just right where you are for a minute, asking God to search your hearts. Where have you kept him out of in your heart? Where have you put him aside? Where are you not letting him in? Confess that to God. Bring him in as we spend a minute just right here in silence in prayer. Let's pray.